UX Podcast Episode 126. Hello, and uh, welcome to UX Podcast, balancing business, technology, and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm Pat Axboom. And I'm James Roy Lawson. And uh, welcome to part two of our interview with Don Norman. Uh, let's just quickly uh, talk about what did we talk about in part one. And for those of you that have not got around to listening to it yet, or listen to these podcasts out of order, yeah. we can have a quick recap. Yeah, but if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen oh, yeah. to it. Yeah. He's fantastic. We um we we covered three uh, kind of we got lots of topics, but mm. three main topics mm. I would say. Um, we covered virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Don gives lots of insights into his experiences with and thoughts around virtual reality. Sure, and the, we talked about the porn industry and and suits, body suits, yeah. vibrators throughout. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was Don's um, idea. Yeah, and also design mm. thinking. Mm. Um, how do you know it's the the right problem? And the, mm. talking about design doing, which I really loved as a as a, yeah. as a phrase. Um, Thinking is easy, doing is hard, is what he said. Mm. Um, and and uh, human centered, a lot of talk about human centered design, of course, mm. um, and and even radical in- innovation and how rare that is. Yeah, yeah he said um, something around. I don't know where that figure came from. I haven't even checked it after that. But he said something around. You may be uh, able to experience a hundred. Innovations over your lifetime. Oh, there was something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and most of those come over a very long exactly. It takes time. thirty it takes years for something to develop 20, and become an innovation. Yeah, a radical innovation. Mm. Um, so most of the stuff we deal with is not radical. Yeah, um, and then also we get a bit a, a bit into um, terminology because of course you can't talk to Don without talking about the term user experience, right? Because he gave birth to it. Yeah, um, he gave, given birth to a lot of uh, different uh, terminology actually. Mm. And everything is being misinterpreted, is what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, that was a little recap of part one. Mm. Now, we'll just jump straight into part two. Uh, I, actually, I was, I was uh, thinking about one of your books uh, now about <laughs> how people misinterpret things. And uh, things that makes us smart back in 94, I think you published that. Uh, and you had a concept there. You, you're talking about the power of the unaided mind is highly overrated, and you were making a case for how we need artifacts and maybe perhaps technology as well uh, to help us uh, grasp uh, uh, complex uh, concepts and help us talk to each other around something that is uh, comprehensible or that is something else and, and not so abstract that, that it, we just describe it in words and text. Uh, and, and these days, people are talking about how technology is actually making us dumber uh, in the sense that uh, we don't even have to think anymore. We can Google everything. We get all the answers. And uh, we don't have this curiosity that I was mentioning that you obviously have uh, in the beginning there. Uh, where, do you think, where, where, where do you see us moving? Are we moving towards actually having technology make us smarter? Or is technology making us dumber right now? I think it was Plato who first raised that argument against books that he hated books because it made us dumber. Yeah. That's in the book that makes us smart, by the way, the quote. Um, and because, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to a person and I disagree, I can argue with a person and we can debate and we can learn. But if I'm reading a book with maybe the very same words and I disagree, there's nothing I can do. I can't argue with the book. <laughs> and uh, he was right. But 
Books make us smarter. They really do. It's, it's actually, we don't get smarter. It's we plus the books get smarter. It's us plus our technology. And by the way, everything artificial uh, is technology. Uh, the invention of writing is technology. Paper and pencil is technology. Mm. Uh, lots of people think technology is all this brand new stuff that we don't understand. But no, it's everything that is made by humans to aid humans, um, to aid themselves, is technology. So... I'm a big fan of technology and giving us more power. And I believe that, look, people misuse technology. So Google is a really good example. I don't need to learn all that stuff. I just Google it. Hmm. Uh, no, what does Google give you? Um, so I have a friend who works at Google. His name is Dan Russell. And he writes a blog. I wish I could remember the name of the blog and I can't see it on my screen. I may be able to pull it up. It's wonderful. He writes his blog every week, and I don't know how he manages it, but it's brilliant and it's interesting. And what he does is he, he wanders about the world. He, he goes running in some strange place, and he sees these weird poles, and he takes a picture, and he comes back and posts and says, okay, people, what is this, and where am I? <laughs> so you can just Google anything and find the answer? Ha. Huh. And then he also he sees a phrase and he says, I love this. What does it mean? And he, he gives these wonderful questions that um, you just can't Google for the answer. You use Google, but you have to really think and understand and you have to then search this and that and the other. And it's wonderful. In, inspires um, thought, yeah. Yes, so... Uh, just a second. I think I know where I might find. You use Google to find it. So you see, it. <laughs> well, that's interesting. It's not clear how to find um, well, that's what I'm looking for. Excellent. Make it challenging to find your blog. <laughs> to find his blog. Yeah. And I'm not Googling for him. Yeah. Oh, there it is. I found the mail. It's called Search Research. One word. S E. R-C-H-R-E-S-E-R-C-H. Yeah, we have it on our screen. James found it now as well, yeah. And it's just fun to read. Mm. It's wonderful. And, uh, and moreover, it shows you that how much you can learn, you can, how powerful Google can make you to be able to think mm. deeply and learn much more about topics. And so mm. that's what I'm getting at, that mm. Google doesn't make us dumb. Mm. It makes us smarter. Now, does it make a lot of people dumb? Yeah. Okay, and do people order? Do people just look for easy answers? Yes, mm. but I suspect that was true even before we had all this fancy technology. Mm. Uh, they would look for some simple answer. I mean, you can just watch the American political system and the various candidates. You can see, it. <laughs> but it, it's true in Europe too, by the way. It isn't oh, just yeah. the U.S. Oh yeah, oh, yes, and, uh, that's quite quite true. <laughs> Because it's true about people. Mm. It's, it's not a statement about a country. It's uh, lots of people love to have a simple answer. Mm. Like one of my favorite quotes, which is in the Living with Complexity book, is from an American journalist who said, every complex problem has a simple answer. And that's kind of useful to know, isn't it? Yeah. But he continues. And it is wrong. <laughs> Every complex problem is a simple answer, but it's wrong. Mm. And yeah, complex problems have complex answers. And the technology, though, allows us to explore them and understand them and see the nuances and get different points of view. And 
you know, one of the, the most powerful technology that we ever invented is writing. And if you expand that a little bit to drawing, and uh, nowadays to building, it's all kind of the same thing. It's making something physical and then that serves as your memory and it also serves in order to make it, you have to think it through a bit more in detail and then other people can see it and experiment it with it. Hmm. Designers like to say they think with their hands. They think by building, they think by drawing, they think by making things. And there's a lot to that. Um, dancers think with their body. I have a friend who's been studying dancers and they, he watches the people creating a new dance and the, 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 the choreographer is, sitting, is moving his body around as he's trying out what could, might possibly work and then he you know, tells the dancers what to do. And there's yeah. a dance notation that helps him write it down and so on. That's a great example um, of design doing. You're actually doing it while you're designing it. Yes, yeah. it's designed by doing. Yeah. I was just thinking now, we're saying about complex problems. Do, do complex problems require complex solutions? Well, the word require. Hmm. No, quite often there's a reframing and then suddenly the complexity disappears. Hmm. Uh, complexity some, is it often is a point of view and uh, sometimes when you're viewing it in the wrong way, uh, it's very difficult. And if you could just get the right point of view, then ooh, it becomes a simple problem. Hmm. And, um, but, it, but the kind of... I'm actually studying complex problems now. That's a lot of the focus of this new design laboratory I'm building here at UC San Diego. Um, UC, University of California, San Diego. Um, that, you know, there's lots of people who design products and services and there are lots of good places to learn about how to do that. So I didn't think the world needed another one. Mm -hmm. But I thought the world did need people who could move into these complex problems like healthcare, like education, like finance, like uh, the role of automation in the world, in the automobile industries where most of our work is now, but also it's going to be in the world of business. Um, in, in healthcare, for example, as we get to personalized medicine and genomics, the amount of data that's going to be given to a physician is overwhelming. Mm. Uh, you can no longer go to your physician who looks at you, does a few tests, and then gives a prescription. Because every, first of all, they'll have so much data about you. And second of all, every prescription will be unique because it will be one that's based upon your particular needs, your body type, your genomes, your history, etc. And so we're going to need uh, huge data. And we have to though, present it in a way that's really useful because the physician actually would like to be able to, to do this in, in minutes. would love to be able to give you an answer as you leave the office. So how do we present it? And how do we organize all these data so, to help the physician guide, guide through the analysis and give a recommendation? Mm -hmm. it, it's really interesting. I had a conversation yesterday with some people in the health system about um, BM's Watson, which is trying to be used now in healthcare. Yeah. But the yeah. problem with Watson, Watson doesn't understand anything. The problem with modern artificial intelligence is it's all based on pattern recognition on huge data. It looks for patterns and, oh, I've seen that pattern before. Here's what, we, here's what the answer was. Or... It reads all the literature, sure, it knows everything the literature says, but it doesn't know how to reason about it, because mm. it's all statistical. 
it's it's neural network weights or Markov chain weights, and uh, there's no understanding. So, um, but rather than say that's a weakness, my friends were saying, see, Watson is worthless. And I'm saying, no, it isn't. It's really neat because it's just like Google. Google, which is actually how, how Google works too. You ask Google a question, it gives you an answer, but it may not, but you don't, you know, I'm not, when I go to Google with a question, often the answer is not what I'm, what I really want. I'm trying to make a decision and I need to be able, or I need to know whether I want to do A or B or I want to, and so I have to ask Google questions and it gives me information and I have to now put it together and finally decide. Hmm. Well, that's what Watson could be good at. It could really help. Um, it knows about obscure diseases, but it also knows about the uh, different symptoms and it can just sort of suggest things to the hmm. physician. The physician then reasons about it. Yeah. And so I'm, what I'm looking for is human technology teamwork. Hmm. A calculator is a good example. Uh, the Dan Russell's re search research blog is another example. Uh, it helps me do things I'm bad at, but it allows me to do the things I'm really good at, which is creativity, putting things together in unusual ways, doing reasoning, understanding the side effects, implications. Yeah, so it, it, it helps you explore a problem space. It's, it's a tool to, to, to assist rather than take over. Absolutely, absolutely. And actually in the, in the medical case, it's, or in any dangerous type situation, uh, it's kind of nice to have this thing whispering in your ear. Um, that seems appropriate, but did you consider this possibility? One of the kinds of errors that people do make is they focus upon a solution and then um, I call that a mistake. Um, if, you, if you diagnose something wrong, uh, then it's really hard to change your mind because usually the wrong diagnosis is close to the correct one. It's consistent with the symptoms that you've seen. And oftentimes the first steps you do as a result are appropriate. And that makes it harder and harder for you to, to back off and say, wait a minute, maybe that's wrong. And if you look at a lot of errors from nuclear power accidents to aviation accidents to medical accidents, you see that people get trapped in that first that first conclusion, mm. and again, because it, the first conclusion isn't stupid, it's actually often the most common uh, conclusion for the symptoms that were there, but every so often you get the uncommon one. So it's really useful to have a voice on the side saying, uh, think about this for a second. Yeah, to, get, to help you overcome your own biases that, that fall into place once you've checked off the first points of the list, said, oh, well, this, this is right, that's right, so it must be this. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that, you can transfer that to the development process as well. You mm. usually start off with doing wireframes and you have the menu to the left and you're doing everything right, but that probably, you, you're not solving the, the right problem, usually. That's one reason we try to train our people. Never do a wireframe. Mm. Do three very, very different ones. Mm. Uh, and the real virtue in that is that you don't get trapped into... If you do one wireframe and keep developing it, you're in love with it. Yes. Yeah. And it's really hard for you then to back out. But if you're doing three at the same time, well, okay, I decide to go with this one. Well, I'll go with that one. And then you need a hypothesis, and then you need to disprove or prove why it's better or worse than the other one. Yeah, but the best way is to throw it out in the world and see what happens when they use it. Hmm. Yeah. And it may actually turn out that all that that each one is preferred by different groups of people. Right. Mm. Yes.
then, then it's up to you to decide whether you want to do several products or whether, well, you have to decide this group is better or maybe there's some compromise that isn't as good for either of the groups but might work better overall. Mm. I think it's time to move on to our one to seven scale questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm just going to briefly explain what that means. Uh, <laughs> I have two questions. James has two questions. And uh, we're going to ask you to... Uh, well, rate these on a scale of one to seven, or answer them on a scale of one to answer seven. Answer them. Where where yeah. one is the one is that you agree, or this is the least, the lower end of the scale, and then seven, of course, is the higher end of the scale. Right. And we're going to go through all four, and you have to rate them or say a number, and we can comment on them afterwards. <laughs> I'll start out. Go on then. Uh, on a scale of one to seven, how tired are you of the term UX? Six. <laughs> Okay, here's my, um, here's my first one. Um, on a scale of one to seven, how well designed are everyday things? One, five, seven. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, on a scale of one to seven, how much do you believe in the concept of self-driving cars? Seven. And my last one here. Um, on a scale of one to seven... How likely are you to buy an iPhone 7 when it comes out? One. <laughs> Excellent. We got all points of the scale there. <laughs> and some bonus ones as well. Yeah. Are there, are, is there anything you want to comment on there? Well, obviously, each of these can, <laughs> deserves a comment. <laughs> you want to just quickly review them and I do it. Quite a, give a quick answer why I gave that answer. Sure, the, oh. ter- your ter- the term UX, you gave it a six. Your ter- yeah, well, that one is because um, the whole point of the term user experience is we should think about the entire experience that's involved in something. And the people who do this really well are uh, hotels uh, and uh, theme parks. Um, and it sort of goes downhill from there. And... And I really like what hotels and theme parks do. They want everything to be a wonderful experience from when you first learn about them to when you show up to how they take care of you. The better ones, anyway, the ones who do it well. And, um, and I've talked to a few people who helped design them, and they're really good. But, and that's what I had in mind. I was thinking in, in, in those days about Apple, and I was talking to my friends who were working for Apple about how, how they had to actually think about what it looks like in the store. And then when someone buys it and they try to take the box and it won't fit in their car. Mm-hmm. And that's a bummer. And it turns out it doesn't fit in their car, not because it's really the box has to be that large, because the people who designed the box never thought about it. And they could they learned how to make a smaller box and they did et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you know, Tesla does a fantastic job of that. Tesla cars fall apart all the time. They're really not that reliable. <laughs> but my, I have a number of friends who own Teslas, and they don't mind. They say they get treated so well when they go when they take their car back, and they're treated well, and they're given another car right away, and it gets fixed, and so on and so forth. Now, Tesla owners are a special breed because they're expensive cars, and every Tesla owner has several cars in addition to the Tesla. Mm. But the point is, they work really hard. And but today. When someone says I'm a user experience designer, it means they do webs- websites or something or apps. Mm. And they don't, the whole term is lost. Next question. Mm. We'll take one more. 
I, I was uh, mostly intrigued by you gave the answer one, five, and seven to James's question of how. That's because yeah. some stuff is just so crappily designed. I can't believe it. I yeah. can't believe they still make it. So that's the one. And mm. on the other hand, some stuff is just brilliant, wonderful. I don't have to think about it. And that's my seven. Mm. And um, but the, the, the most of the stuff is kind of mediocre. Five. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. It's it, this, it's is that we hop between fantastic stuff and poor stuff constantly in every single every single day. It's like you started out with that. No, I keep the door that said push, but you could pull it as well. I mean, you react to these things every day. Everything you, if you're in this industry, you talk, you think about these things mm. constantly. Yeah, <laughs> I said, I, I actually bought, I bought a new. There's cat. a good side of that. Good side of that. Um, we will always need. They'll always need to hire us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I actually bought a new kettle this week um, because my, my existing one broke. Mm. And um, I learned something about modern kettles. Um, I, I didn't think, when I was researching what kettle should I buy, I didn't think at all that I would need to check that it actually boiled water. So I bought this kettle and it, was, it filled all my other requirements that I worked out and came home and it was one of these ones with a modern display panel. Uh, so it's an electrical kettle. Electric yeah, kettle, yeah. yes, sorry, yeah, not a, mm. not a stovetop mm. one, an electrical kettle, which I, yeah. I know aren't so common in the US. But, um, and I, I, it's got a number of buttons and a temperature gauge on it and you could only choose between 60, 70, 80 and 90 degrees Celsius. Now, of course, to boil water, I need 100, but 100 did not exist as an option. So this, this what they're saying, they're saying, <clears throat> see, you use a uh, stupid consumer, uh, <laughs> you don't realize you're using this for coffee or well, coffee. You should never use boiling water. You should always yeah. use 90 is the correct temperature for coffee and tea. Well, that depends what kind of tea you have. Is it yeah. green tea? Then you probably want 70 or yeah. especially a subtle white tea, 70. And if it's a black tea, yeah, then you could use 90. So, but. And they're correct, by the way, if you actually <laughs> try it out and do the research, except not allowing you to have 100, not allowing you to boil, that's crazy. On top of that, if you actually use it, I bet it goes all the way to boil. I, I tried actually a few times, Don. I tried a few it times. It got to 93. 93 was a maximum. I tried it a few times, and I, I kind of gamed myself with the kettle. Can I get it to get to 100? 93 was my record before so I took it back. my experience. The way they're designed is it actually boils. Forget what the temperature gauge said. Mm. You can hear the water boiling, mm. but mm. then it stops boiling because I think what they do is it's easy to do up to boiling and then they let it cool off. They stop it the instant mm. the boiling occurs and then they let it cool off to the temperature that you've asked it for. Mm. It's kind of bizarre. It was, <laughs> I, was, I was surprised that, yeah. it was, it, that they, I could understand why they would offer certain other temperatures, but I couldn't for the life of me understand why a kettle that was meant to boil water didn't actually do its it, it's fundamental you know the the simple job the one task you would ask you see you old-fashioned person you think that you're supposed to, you want to boil water you actually don't want to boil water That's <laughs> exactly. you actually want to lower temperature you don't know that but i know i'm better than you i know that yeah exactly it yeah. knows it knows best <laughs> never um, ask the user that's the thing okay don it's been fantastic that you wanted to do this with us uh Excellent. I don't remember it, but I interviewed you back uh, eight years ago. I interviewed you as well. It was equally excellent. You always explain stuff so eloquently, and it's so easy for people to actually understand the concept that you're grasping at. So thank you so much for that. 
Well, you're quite welcome, and as you can tell, I enjoyed it as well. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Great fun. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Ready? How how do you summarize Don Norman? Because we talked about everything. Uh, oh, that is actually one of the the, the instant reflections from it. He's like he in that in that what forty six minutes of talking that mm. we had with with Don. Mm. Um, he brought up and went through and touched upon several of the topics we've we've covered in the podcast mm. over the last couple of months. Yeah. Um, from um, um, again, te- uh, agent of technology, technology with, with Chris um, Yeah, and um, and also artificial intelligence, mm. um, which we talked about with Amber Case, um, and even um, uh, Melissa Perry. Yeah, every discovery and and, and kind of working out how you, if you're building the right thing. I mean, working in teams. Mm. And if you look even further back, we've we've covered even more of this stuff. So, I mean, part of this is you just realise how big an influence Don probably has and has had, and how big of a handle he has on everything that's happening. And oh. I mean, it's just mind blowing. Yeah. I tweeted actually the other day that when I was listening to um, to this this interview, so we could record these intros, outros. Mm. Um, I, I reflect on the fact that I mean, if I'm if I'm even like just. Twenty percent as connected and as up to date mm. and as smart mm. as as Don is mm. at eighty. Mm. When I'm eighty, I'm going to be so pleased. Mm. I mean, that's just it really is mind blowing. Mm. I love like when we're interviewing him and we're proposing things. He never really agrees with us. He's always saying something contradictory or or tweaking it. What we're saying is like he's he really has a handle on what he thinks and and. And how not to agree with uh, with common sense, which most people would regard mm. as common sense. Yeah, re, yeah. Re, re, um, even if he did slightly agree at times, and he still managed to 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 reframe it back at us exactly with an example that maybe forced you to think. Mm-hmm. Um, an excellent ability. Mm. Um, I like how he called me out in, in the beginning because I, I was calling him <laughs> really patient, and he said, "I'm I'm not patient." <laughs> So yeah, he has a calm demeanor, but he's not patient with people. He's really frustrated that people are not getting this. <laughs> yeah, because the industries are doing it. Like he said, over and over again, they're doing the same mistakes. They're, everybody's saying we're different, we're different, mm. but they're really not different. And he's, mm. you know, some of his mm. things, some of his writings. I mean, they're they're getting quite old now. As in, yeah. they're they're not they're not new. Yeah, um, you know they're. Decades old, some of the oh, yeah. writings. I think um, most of his work is actually pre, like World Wide Web. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet some of the things he's he's suggesting and, and advising you to do mm. um, is still applicable mm. and still not being followed. Mm. Um, but um, the, the one of the things I'm going to remember is it's actually from his his I think it's a quote from his book, um, mm. The Design of Everyday Things. Is, is Norman's Law? Mm. Um, the day that the product team is assembled. It's over budget and it's behind schedule. Yeah. Now, I mean, we both laughed and agreed. And we said, agreed so true. instantly. Yeah. Um, and it is. I mean, I we've been involved in this trade now for mm. a fair while, and yeah, things doesn't things don't come in um, under budget mm. and and ahead of schedule really ever. And then I liked what he said because the problem that he was describing there is that so we, we try to do research, but then mm. we're already over budget, so we don't get the money or the resources to do the, mm. those um, whatever ethnographic studies or whatever you want to mm. do, interviews. Uh, and he says, you can't do this stuff before. And so he's saying he's proposing that you actually have a separate team that's always constantly doing the research. Yeah, because mm. he was also saying about that, you know, you can't expect programmers mm. um, to go in there and question mm. the motives and 
you know, at that point say, are you sure you're doing the right thing? Yeah. And he was saying to us, this was in part one, um, that, no, the programmers are there to program. Yeah. I mean, yes, they should have um, understanding of human-centered design and keep mm. the, the, the user in mind while they're doing their work. Mm. But they, you can't have them questioning the fundamentals mm. of what they're doing at that point mm. because it's too late when it gets to that point. You should mm. you could argue. You could argue. Um, some people out there are probably going to get in touch and say, well, you know, if you're iterating close enough and fast mm. enough, maybe it's not too late. But, um, yeah. but I think you've still passed that point of, of deciding what to build when exactly. you get into the, yeah. the, 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 you know, the, the I actually proposed that where I'm working now that we actually have usability testing booked like one Friday every month mm. uh, because then you get into that way of thinking as well. And you invite everybody to participate. And um, you, always, you always have something to test. I mean, it's impossible not to yeah. have something to test. I think it's an excellent, <laughs> excellent suggestion, Pat, because yeah. also it gets, you, it gets you out of that mm. excuse um, pattern that, you know, if you, if you, you can always say, well, mm. we'll do it next sprint or we'll do yeah. it next time. Mm. Whereas if you said, no, we're doing something this Friday, mm. just what are we going to do? Mm. Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, there's no question about whether we're doing it or not. It's What's a matter most of what important? we're going I, to I, do. I, I, what, what allows us to learn the most this, yeah. this time? I'm pretty sure people will stand in line. There were a large queue of people mm. wanting to test stuff. Mm. I mean, maybe you don't have to do testing. You could actually, you could actually do some kind of research-based thing as well. God damn, I think it's an excellent idea, Per. The next time I'm gonna, I'm gonna demand that we book in. <laughs> um, I'm gonna stand up. I'm yes. gonna stand up. Demand. And I'm gonna, we're gonna demand that. that we book in um, <laughs> testing or, or yeah. research um, specific things to learn about what yeah. we're doing. Thank like you. Because what he's saying, and also with people misunderstanding Agile, which I loved. Uh, well, I did love the people are misunderstanding it. I loved what he said. Misun uh, misunderstanding Agile, <laughs> Lean, and UX. Yes. That people are always, at the end of a sprint, people are want to get ahead and design the next thing in the next sprint. But that's not what Agile is. You actually design something in the sprint, and then you find throw out, it away. did it work or not? Mm. And then you throw it away and redo mm. it. <laughs> How often do you throw away? In, exactly. Um, in, in People just keep sprints. building and building and mm. building. And so they're doing the same thing mm. or the same mistakes over and over again. Companies, mm. companies and organizations mm. find it very difficult to fully be agile mm. in the sense that they should be prepared to throw away the results of a, um, a sprint if, if, it's done, if, finished, if it's fulfilled its purpose. Yeah, exactly. Um, I also loved, um, <laughs> I really enjoyed um, Don's... Um, answers to our heptaskill challenge questions yes he um so far the people that we've run this with he's the one that thought the most there's some wonderful pauses yes he, he really did where think. he did think about the answers and um, except with the iphone oh no there was no thought there at all he just <laughs> he just spat out one um but no the um uh, and i'm gonna i'm gonna remember his answer to the um the state of design mm. when we asked him about that and he, he replied with one five and seven i think you know the, the state of design on, by Don Norman summarized in four words and three numbers. One, five, and seven. <laughs> and he's so true. It is very true. Mm. And he's not afraid to break the rules. He didn't choose one number. He chose three numbers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he pointed out as well that he didn't choose one, four, and seven. Yes, exactly. And he chose one, five, and seven. And I don't think that was by mistake. Oh. It was actually, he mm. meant that either products are really shitty mm. or they're a bit more than okay or really excellent. Yeah. There's, there are no products in between shitty and okay. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> you, well, I think it's more to do with the frustration, isn't it, mm. around it, that it, something is either designed and mm. makes you incredibly mm. frustrated mm. or it's kind of okay mm. um, or it's excellent. Mm. That bit in between there, mm. between one and, and, and five, uh, yeah, you know, you do get pushed to the, 
ex, you know, coping with it or, mm. or or hating it. We did manage also, I liked uh, at the end, to segue into really practical advice around wireframes. And he said, always do three wireframes and very different wireframes. Yeah. Because that challenges your challenges your thinking. Yeah, and, and also it's stops so you common from, to just go ahead and do one, and also prevents you from mm. falling. I think he's falling in love with your initial idea yes. or your favorite idea. Yes, exactly. Um, all our cognitive biases mm. that we have, even that was actually in relation to stage. to what he was saying about healthcare, and that when you have a diagnosis and you make that, and you always mm. you fall in love with your diagnosis, and mm. if it's the wrong one then you're in big trouble. Yeah, And you see that you look at the data and you misdiagnose due to similar patterns yeah. and similar um, results in, the, in, in front of you. And it's so easy to design something in the way that you've seen someone else design it. Mm. Yeah. Maybe getting, getting stuck in your head the kind of mm. the one or two observations you made, mm. <laughs> which maybe weren't representative mm. of everyone. I think we could do a whole show just talking about, oh, about the interview oh, with Don. God. <laughs> We could do a whole series, actually. It's a, a huge amount of fantastic um, um, information, and I will be listening back to this again. Yes, because um, uh. um, I'm, I'm, I feel like I've got even more to learn by listening to him um, a fair few times in the future. Right. What else do we have? We have uh, show notes. Uh, go to our website, uxpodcast.com. There will be links uh, attached to the page that this episode is published on. <laughs> Including the mysterious blog of um, Don's friend. That was yes, so difficult to exactly. find. I, I actually looked at it yesterday. It was really fun. He, yeah. he, actually, he asked questions to the people who were reading his yeah. blog, which was yeah. nice. Hmm. Um, you can also sign up for our backstage mailing list by just getting touch with us any way you like mm. with your email address um, and we'll add you to the list. Tweet, or you a, tweet us right now. Yeah, or you mm. can you can go to the website and um, mm. and fill in, in there too. Um, backstage at uxpodcast.com is the email address. Mm -hmm. um, we will be having a link show for you next week. Oh yeah, exactly. And I'm saying next week. Because next it week. is next week. This every other Friday, it's we're kind of getting out of that loop. We're sort of doing them more often now. Aren't well, we? we're we're testing we're this whole two-part yeah, thing. Out. Um, but yep, link show coming up for you. Mm. So stay, just stay tuned for that. We'll be talking a bit about simplicity. <laughs> mm, there we go. <laughs> okay then. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Mm.